Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today we want to do a talk on 12 lead EKG and this is something that Tanner and I have been wanting to do for a while now. I feel like it's something that is often done and in the pre-op setting that we look over just to do a cardiac evaluation very quickly on a patient before you take them back to the OR. It's not necessarily something that we often do intraoperatively, but more just to assess their cardiac function prior to going back to the OR. And Tanner and I just wanted to quick do an overview on reading 12 lead EKGs. And I'm not talking about just reading the sentence up top that says sinus rhythm with PVCs. We are very, very excellent readers of EKGs if that's <laughs> the way we're going to be doing it. I can read you an impression like nobody's business. <laughs> so we're not going to go crazy in depth here. We don't claim to be cardiologists that know exactly how to interpret the minute details of these different variations you can see. But we just want to do a bird's eye view of what areas of the heart are going to be affected by which lead, how the basic system works in terms of the conduction system of the heart, and then the vasculature in terms of which coronary artery supplies which portion of the ventricle and which lead that we're going to see changes in corresponding to different ischemia events that we can have in the heart. So without further ado, Tanner, do you just want to take us away with the general conduction system through the heart? As we all know, your myocardial cells in the heart are going to be able to conduct these electrical signals throughout the heart. That's how we get the contraction and squeeze of the heart. And the conduction is going to start there in the SA node. So that's going to be there on the top right part of the heart in that right atrium. It's going to send electrical impulses down to the AV node then to the bundle of Hiss, and then through the bundle branches, and then you'll have your Purkinje fibers that kind of wrap back up around the ventricles and help with the squeeze. So like I said, the SA node is going to be in the right atrium. It's the pacemaker of the heart. Stimulation to the SA node is going to be a balance here between the vagus nerve and then also your parasympathetic nervous system and your cardiac accelerator fibers from T1 to T4 in the sympathetic nervous system. So this will all play into effect as far as the heart rate. The electrical part of the SA node and AV node, they have a threshold potential around negative 45 millivolts. The resting membrane is around negative 60 millivolts. So a typical cycle will start in phase four where the membrane of these cells will start to leak sodium into the cell through the IF channels, which will make the cell a lot more positive. Your T-type calcium channels will open and allow calcium to enter the cell, and this will just also increase the voltage here. Once you hit that negative 45 millivolts, that's the threshold potential, and phase zero starts, which is where you have your L-type voltage-gated calcium channels opening, and then you'll have a dramatic increase in your calcium entering into the cell. In phase three, this is where your potassium channels open. So potassium is going to be exiting the cell and making it more negative until the cell is repolarized. The sodium-potassium ATPase pumps will start to correct that sodium-potassium after the cycle is done, and that's where you get back to your phase four restarting. So you'll note that I didn't mention phase one or two for the 
action potential here in the SA node and the AV node. This is different than what you'll see in the cells that are actually contracting. But again, here we're just talking about the action potential there for the SA and AV nodes. The electrical stimulus from here are going to be conducted through gap junctions between the cells. Like I mentioned earlier, your SA node is going to be the real pacemaker of the heart. This is what is going to be starting these stimuli through the coronary system. But again, these gap junctions is what is going to actually communicate between the cells. From the SA node, the stimulus is going to be sent to the AV node through several different tracts. So you have the middle internodal tract, that's the Wenckebach tract. You have the posterior internodal tract, and that's known as the Thorell tract. And then you have your anterior intermodal tract, and that's the Bachmann tract. The AV node is going to be basically the gatekeeper between your atria and your ventricles. The bundle of hiss and bundle branches are in the ventricular septum. So that's going to go down in between the ventricles. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the Purkinje fibers are what is going to wrap up and around the ventricles. So this is what is actually going to facilitate that squeeze to eject the blood out of the heart. So it's important not to get confused here. What Tanner was going through is the conduction system of the heart. So when we're talking about the action potential with the electrolytes, potassium, calcium, sodium, moving through those with phase four, zero, and three, that's the conduction system of the heart. That is different than the actual contractile cells. So the signal that is going through that conduction pathway is then going to trigger the contracting cells around that conduction system to then have an electrical stimuli and action potential, which is then going to cause that cell to contract. And that's what actually squeezes the blood out. So let's just take a second to go through the action potential of the contractile cells now. So the cells that contract in the heart have a threshold potential of a negative 70 millivolts, while the resting potential is around negative 90. So it's slightly different than what Tanner was talking about with the conduction system. So it's resting at negative 90, and then once it gets to that negative 70 point, that's when the threshold hits and the stimuli is successful in terms of causing these cells to contract. Once the conduction pathway triggers the contractile cells, that's going to be phase zero now. Phase zero is depolarization through sodium channels where sodium is going to rush into the cell and cause that voltage to go above zero. At this point, it's going to go way up to the positive mark above zero, and then phase one is going to start by chlorine entering the cell. So it's a negative ion entering the cell, which will decrease that voltage as well as potassium channels opening and causing potassium to leave the cell. So that's a positive ion leaving the cell. Again, it's going to lower the voltage in the cell now. So phase zero, we've shot up to positive. And now in phase one, we're causing negative chlorine to come in, positive potassium to go out, which is going to lower it slightly. And at this point, phase zero and one are going to equate the QRS on our EKG. So this is a contracting of the ventricles with the QRS. Phase two at this point is going to be the plateau phase. So our voltage in these cells are still positive, but it's dropped slightly after phase one. And in phase two now we plateau and we maintain that positive value. And this is due to calcium entering the cell while the potassium is leaving. So the potassium is still leaving from phase one into phase two here now, but we have positive calcium coming in and this kind of balances it out and keeps the overall voltage in that cell slightly positive. This is around the ST segment of our EKG. And then when we get to phase three, just potassium is going to leave the cell and that calcium is now going to be done in flexing. 
And this causes the cell to repolarize and that voltage to drop. And this is around the T wave of our EKG. So that T wave is the repolarization of those ventricles. And then phase four is going to be the resting phase in which sodium is going to leave the cell. So hopefully that makes sense. That's your QRS, your ST segment, and your T wave. Hopefully you know the P wave prior to this is the atrium contracting. So what I was talking about here is more specific to the ventricles. So in terms of EKG, when you're reading an EKG strip, there's going to be little graph markings and little boxes, and there's going to be bold boxes with four little lines in between those bolded ones, which make out five little spaces. Each of those little spaces is 0.04 seconds, with each bold line being 0.2 seconds. Hopefully that makes sense. Using that measuring system, this is how you interpret the length of these different segments of the EKG. So a P wave is 0.08 to 0.12 seconds. That's pretty typical. And this is followed by an interval prior to the QRS, which is known as the PR interval. And this PR interval should be around 0.12 all the way up to 0.2 seconds. So it should be up to and not greater than one bold line to the next bold line. And again, that P wave is the atrium contracting. And that PR interval is the time between when the atrium contracts and the ventricles contract. And this is due to the fact that that AV node causes a slight pause when that signal is going through from the SA node to the AV node before it enters into the ventricles to allow time for all the blood to be ejected from the atrium into the ventricles. That way, when the ventricles have the signal go through, it can squeeze blood out into the pulmonary and systemic circuits. The QRS complex should be less than 0.12 seconds. Again, this is the contraction of the ventricle. The Q wave is the first negative deflection from the baseline, followed by an R wave, which is then going to be the first positive deflection from the baseline. And then the S wave is the next negative deflection. So this Q, R, and S deflections make up the QRS complex. And again, this is a ventricular contraction. The ST segment after this QRS is that space between the S deflection and the T wave. And this is where the inflection should return back to baseline after that S wave and is the time between the contraction and the repolarization of those ventricle cells. The point at which this QRS turns flat again, you're going to see the S deflection, which is negative, come back up and then the ST segment flattens out before the T wave. The point where the QRS turns flat is the J point. This is where we're going to measure if the ST segment is elevated or changed and give us clues as to if the patient has ischemia or injury to the heart, because that J point is where we're going to measure if it's elevated or not. So keep that in mind as we move forward. And then again, like I said before, that T wave is now the repolarization of the ventricles. Next, let's talk about the actual perfusion of the coronaries. And then after we understand this, it'll make the 12 lead make a little more sense as far as what we're looking at to identify ischemia. So the first branch off the aorta after the aortic valve is the left and right coronary arteries. The right coronary artery is going to supply blood to the inferior wall of the left ventricle. The left coronary artery is going to branch to the left anterior descending artery, which will supply the anterior wall of the left ventricle, and then also the left circumflex artery, which will supply to the lateral wall of the left ventricle. The posterior side of the left ventricle is going to be supplied by both the circumflex and the right coronary artery. So having a good understanding of where those left and right coronary arteries go 
And then also understanding where they branch, especially there on that left coronary artery and going into the circumflex there. That's going to be very important as you understand your 12 lead. It's going to be important that you understand first and foremost, the placement of your 12 lead. And then from there, I think it's pretty self-explanatory about where these leads are looking. And then you can identify where you'll have injury to the heart. So there's three different types of leads that are used in a 12 lead. Limb leads are going to be one, two, and three. You have augmented limb leads, which is AVR, AVL, and AVF. You have unipolar chest leads, so these precordial leads. That's V1 through V6, and that's going to be placed from the fourth intercostal space on the right sternal border for V1, and then on a row on the left side of that sternal border until you get to V6, which is placed on the fifth intercostal space on the mid-axillary line. When you're placing these, so you know you'll have V1 by itself on the fourth intercostal space, right side of the sternal border. On the other side of the sternum, you have V2, same intercostal space, so that's the fourth intercostal space. Then you know that all the way at the other end, in the mid-axillary line, you have V6. On the nipple line there, you have V4. And then on either side of V4, you have V3, V5. So those are kind of the three main ones that I put on initially is going to be V2, V4, and V6. And then you can just split the difference with the V3 and V5. Just curious, when did you ever actually have to place leads for a 12 lead? Like I would always watch a tech come in and do it. Like I never actually had to place the leads. Uh, we always did that for somebody who was like going into a rhythm or something. We just had a EKG machine up on our floor and then you could just get them hooked up and try to catch them in whatever rhythm they were in. I felt like when I traveled, I saw more times when you'd put an order in and then a tech would come. But initially the floor I was on, we did our own 12 leads. That's awesome. So the leads will measure electrical current between the positive and negative electrodes. The placement of the positive electrode determines which part of the heart is being analyzed. So when you have electrical current moving towards the pos positive electrode, it'll have a positive deflection on the EKG, whereas the current moving away from the positive electrode will have a negative deflection. So for example, lead one has a positive electrode at the upper left arm. So that's going to be looking at the lateral side of the left ventricle. That makes sense. If you're on the left arm, you're going to be looking at that lateral side of the left ventricle. And you just think about your anatomy there and where that is looking at the heart. For me, each of these times that you're looking at a specific lead, I literally try to think about the view from that lead toward the heart and you understand how the heart is kind of angled there inside the chest and you can start to see, okay, well, what part of the heart would I be looking at here? So again, lead one, you're on that left upper arm. You're looking at the left side of the left ventricle. So that's going to be the circumflex artery that you're going to be analyzing. So using this idea, you can look at the rest of the limb leads. So lead two and three are going to look at the inferior part of the left ventricle. So that's going to be supplied by your right coronary artery. Your limb leads, AVL, looks at the lateral side. Again, that's going to be your circumflex artery, where your AVF is going to be looking at the inferior part. So that's, again, the right coronary. For the precordial leads, remember that they are placed on the chest. I went over that just a second ago. V1 is going to be on the right sternal border and then working around to V6. 
So this should help you understand what V1 through V6 are analyzing. I think more than getting an idea of you know, where to place the stickers, just having an idea of where those are on the chest is going to help you as you think about you know, what are you looking at on the actual EKG as it relates to the position of the heart. So V1, V2 are going to be looking at the septum, which is going to be perfused by the left anterior descending artery. V3, V4 are going to look at the anterior part of the left ventricle. So that's supplied by your LAD. V5, 6 are going to look at the lateral side of the left ventricle. Again, that's going to be supplied by your circumflex. Awesome. So hopefully that makes sense that each lead has a positive and negative associated with it. And we're really concerned with the positive side and from where the positive side is looking at the heart, almost imagine there's a a camera that's taking a picture of the heart directly from that positive side. So as Tanner was saying, wherever the lead is at the positive side of that, look at the heart from that angle and try to picture that on the chest. And that'll tell you, what side of the heart you're looking at. And then you just have to know, well, what vasculature is providing blood supply to that area of the heart? Are we dealing with the anterior side? Are we dealing with the posterior side, et cetera? And then knowing if that's going to be your circumflex, your right coronary, et cetera. Really, those are the only two things you need to know to then determine what part of the heart is having ischemia when you see changes in terms of looking at a 12-lead EKG. So what are we necessarily looking at that's going to give us clues in different leads that there may be problems? So let's talk about ischemia first. Ischemia is going to be due to an inadequate supply of oxygen to the myocardial tissue. This can either be caused by the narrowing of the coronary artery via a clot, a spasm, coronary artery disease. These are all absolute ischemia problems. Or it can be caused from an increased oxygen demand And this could be maybe you're severely exercising to the point that you're causing way too much stress on the heart. You have hypertrophy, you have hypoxia, et cetera. And this can cause relative ischemia. I'm not saying this is necessarily for sure what happened to me, but the other day I decided, hey, you know what? I had a long week of clinical. I'm going to go out and run a mile. And I used to be a cross-country track guy. And so I thought, you know, I could go out and run a mile pretty fast probably still, even though I'm in clinical and haven't ran a lot lately. So I started running and was like, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing pretty good. I think I can maybe beat a five minute mile here if I really, really hustle. And I started going faster and faster. And then my stubbornness got the better of me, even though I was hurting and I tried to beat a five minute mile, which I didn't, I'm way too out of shape to do that right now. But I got done. I had shooting pain down my left arm and my chest I'm like, you know what? I think I worked myself too hard. I might have been causing some increased uh, oxygen demand to the point of causing some relative ischemia to my heart. I have no idea if that actually is what happened, but I'd like to maybe think that I pushed myself to the max, you know? I don't know. Yeah. It's a fun anecdotal story about how you almost died this week. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) This is why I hang around the like 10 and a half, 11 minute mile just for safety. You know, the pain went away after about 10 minutes, so I felt better about it, but it probably, yeah. was, I, it probably was just cramping my muscles, but yeah. when I was preparing an uh, outline to do this, I'm like, hey, that might have been what happened to me. Anyway, <laughs> that's relative ischemia, so increased stress on the heart, increased oxygen demand can cause a relative ischemia. 
So there's subendocardial tissue. This is the most at risk for ischemia due to being the inner part of the myocardial muscle wall. So ischemia to just this portion, just the subendocardial tissue, is considered a non-STEMI. Typically, this is seen as ST depression. So if you remember, this is the point from that S negative deflection all the way over to that T wave. That section there, we're going to look at where that J point is and where that leveling out of that ST segment is and comparing that to where that PR interval was. And if this is depressed or lower, then it's going to be considered ST depression. If it's around the same, it's considered normal. And if it's above it, it's going to be elevated. Transmural ischemia, this is ischemia to the full thickness of the muscle. This is seen as ST depression, T wave inversion. So that T wave is going to be instead of a positive deflection, it'll be a negative deflection. So the, the wave will be upside down on your EKG. When we get into injury, injury is if the ischemia continues, it can turn into injury. So subintercardial injury will still have that ST depression. And at this point, it can be relieved with treatment, but if it persists, it can turn into infarction, which I'll get to in a second. And if it's transmural, then it'll be an ST elevation at this point. This is often the fireman's hat that you typically hear of with that ST elevation that you see. And this is a need to treat this. Otherwise, we're going to go to infarction and cause tissue death and necrosis. Infarction now is when the injury has lasted long enough that for a transmural, that full muscle thickness starts to form that necrotic tissue and that dead tissue just because it has not gotten enough oxygen for an extended period of time. And as the electrical current moves through the heart, remember two facts here. It moves away from areas of myocardial infarction and towards areas of hypertrophy. So basically this dead necrotic tissue is not going to be able to have that electrical current go through it. So it's going to move away from that. So as a result, hours to days after the infarction, you're going to see Q waves develop. And this is due to the fact that that current is moving away from that necrotic tissue and being pulled away from that dead tissue. So a Q wave, what is it? It's a negative deflection before the R wave. So this is where you have your QRS. If you have a significant Q wave, is what I'm talking about here, it's a significant negative deflection before you go up to that positive R deflection. This can be a telling sign for you if a patient had a previous MI. As the MI progresses, so at this point, let's say the patient just started having a myocardial infarction and it's now gone from minutes to hours, there'll be ST elevation and T wave inversion. Your R waves are going to be larger than normal. And this is due to that previous negative Q deflection as well. So the more negative deflection you see in that Q wave later on after that infarction, then you're going to see now a bigger R wave because it's coming up positively more so due to the fact that we had a negative Q, if that makes any sense. There'll be a bigger deflection there between that negative Q and that positive R. And so what we're going to watch for is R wave progression through our precordial leads. So typically, this R wave should start small in V1 and then get larger as you progress towards V6. If this is altered, then you may have had a previous MI in this patient. And be mindful of the fact that an elevated ST segment in this infective tissue will then cause an ST depression in opposite leads. So if you're looking at your 12 lead EKG and you see ST elevation in one lead on let's say the anterior part of the heart on that posterior side, you might see some ST depression. 
So just keep that in mind that as you're looking through all these different angles of the heart, you're going to see the reciprocal effect on different parts. So hopefully you're still with me and that makes sense. A couple more quick bullet points on this. If a patient has an ST elevation, you can assume that the MI started within the past five days. If there's T-wave inversion, you can assume that there was a possible MI in the past six months. And if you have a significant Q-wave, then you can predict there was an MI over six months ago. And so, like I said here, what is considered a significant Q-wave? So this is going to be greater than 0.03 seconds and then greater than one-third the height of the R-wave. And you have to be able to see it in at least two leads. So again, you should always see a negative Q deflection, but to be significant enough, you have to meet that criteria. And this is typically only seen in that transmural ischemia and not the subendocardial MI. In this case, if it is just subendocardial MI, you have to look at other things such as are there other EKG changes? Are there enzymes changed such as their troponin levels? Is their history different? Uh, you have to use other clues other than just looking at um, significant Q wave changes to determine that. And then lastly, if you have an ST segment elevation in all your leads, so if you're looking at your 12 lead and you're seeing all the leads have ST segment elevation or the majority of them do, then you should be concerned for pericarditis. So you have enough ischemia to all different parts of the heart and not just one area. And this suggests something more than just one of the coronary vessels not being able to perfuse. Um, so just keep that in mind that if you do see that in multiple, multiple leads, suspect pericarditis. And if it persists longer, if that SC elevation persists longer than a few months after the MI, then you should suspect ventricular aneurysm. I know that was a lot of different changes that you would see, but hopefully that made sense. If it didn't, go back and re-listen to that section. Um, those are the things that we're going to kind of be looking for when you're looking at specific leads on this 12-lead EKG. The last quick thing that we just want to touch on before we wrap up this discussion is if you have axis deviation. And remember that when you are looking at these different leads, you are looking at the positive deflection. And so when we're looking for axis deviation, we're mainly going to be using lead one and AVF to determine if you have left or right deviation. So both of these normally have the positive deflection. So if you suspect right axis deviation, this will be noticed in lead one as it turns to a negative deflection. If you have left axis deviation, that is where your AVF will turn negative. Some things that can cause axis deviation especially to the left, would be things like aortic valve stenosis or regurgitation. If you have mitral regurgitation, chronic hypertension. If you have right deviation, this would be things like problems with blood flow through your pulmonary circuit. So you could have things like core pulmonal, pulmonary hypertension, PE, or even respiratory issues like COPD. So again, the main two things that you're gonna look at for these would be lead one and AVF. If you have a negative in lead one, that is going to be a right axis deviation. If you have a negative in lead AVF, that is where you have a left axis deviation. Like Cole mentioned at the very beginning, this isn't an all-encompassing review of EKGs, but this should be enough to give you a bird's eye view and help you just reinforce the things that you already know about interpreting EKGs. I know for me, I'll learn this and sometimes you don't 
get into the practice of interpreting every EKG by yourself. You just look at the impression like we mentioned earlier. So this is something that you really have to practice and get used to identifying these different things, which types of leads that you'll see coordinate together. Also getting an idea of how you're looking at the heart from these different leads, just really reinforcing that learning by taking the time to do this daily is going to pay large dividends and reinforcing this content.